If you remember when we looked at the beginning of the Old Covenant in Exodus 19, when God had brought the children of Israel out of slavery to Egypt, and he established his relationship with them, he gave them three glorious promises that the covenant would include. And those were that they would be a people for God's own possession, that they would be a kingdom of priests, and that they would be a holy nation. And you recall that we spent some time emphasizing the importance of the first word of the covenant, if. If Israel would obey the terms of the covenant, they would enjoy being special to God, God's own possession. Now, of course, God owns everything anyway. He owns the heavens and the earth, but he was signifying to them that they would have a special place with him. And they would be an entire kingdom of priests, people who ministered in the manifest presence of God. The whole nation would enjoy that relationship. And they would be a holy nation. And we talked about how the word holy means set apart or distinct or separate. They would be unlike any other people group on the planet if they would keep the terms of the covenant. So we talked about the special distinction that Israel would have if they kept the covenant. And tonight we're going to consider that God also gave them a special sign of the covenant, a special distinctive mark that would be something they could see and observe every day of their existence that showed they were different and set apart from the other nations. And that was the sign of circumcision. The circumcision of the foreskin of the flesh of males when they were eight days old. Now the origin of that rite of circumcision in a re religious sense for the Jews started actually with Abraham. When God had made the promises to Abraham that he would have descendants to outnumber the stars, he gave a covenant of circumcision to Abraham and required Abraham and all of his offspring to continue this rite of circumcision. This included Isaac and Ishmael and all of Isaac's descendants, Jacob and Esau, and all of Jacob's descendants, the 12 tribes, and so on. So that's where it originated. But then it became sort of uh, swallowed up by the entire Old Covenant, by the Jewish nation, and they took it as a sign signifying their relationship to God. In Exodus chapter 12, where God is preparing Israel to lead them out of slavery to Egypt, and he gives them the instruction to kill the lamb and put the blood over the doorpost, and he talks about the Passover feast, the great celebratory meal that they would have, the, the memorial to remember how God had rescued them by killing the firstborn throughout Egypt, but whenever the angel of death came through and saw the blood of the lamb, he would pass over that house, the Jewish house, as he was giving this special meal to them, he made it very clear that this meal was only for the Jews. Or if the Jews had foreigners traveling through or slaves who were not descendants of Israel, 
they would all have to be circumcised if they were going to participate in this Passover meal. So we see in Exodus 12, even before the Exodus itself, that God is making circumcision a very significant element within the Jewish community. A little bit later on in Joshua chapter 5, as the, the next generation, the young generation of Jews are about to enter into the promised land. We remember that the original generation came up to the precipice of the promised land and God said, send in some spies to check out the land and they came back and their report was, they're too big, they're too strong, they're too powerful, we can't overcome them. And God was angry with that generation because of their lack of faith, their cowardice and their lack of trust in him, that he brought the entire nation to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and all of the fighting men over the age of 20 perished in the wilderness under God's judgment. Well, when this, the next generation, the, the young boys that grew up and were ready to take the land now, finally reached the edge of the promised land, Joshua was told to circumcise all the males because they had failed to circumcise the, the boys in the wilderness. And before they could occupy the promised land, before God would bring about his promise, they all had to be circumcised because this was the distinguishing mark for the people of Israel. Circumcision, we learn in the New Testament, actually bound the Jew to the Old Covenant. It was incumbent upon every person who was circumcised to keep the law in total. And they were therefore bound to all of the curses of that covenant if they didn't keep the covenant. So to be circumcised was the same thing as being a Jew. And to be a Jew was the same thing as being circumcised and under the covenant. So any boy who was circumcised without any choice of his, was a Jew and bound to the terms of the covenant. Think about that with me for a minute. A Jewish family would have a young son. On the eighth day, he was circumcised. And now he is obligated to keep every commandment of God listed in the old covenant. He didn't choose to get in this covenant. He was born into it. And as he grew up, he was required to obey. This is why Moses is so emphatic in the Shema passage that fathers teach their children when they're walking along the way, when they're rising up, when they're sitting down, when they're lying down. He said, write it as your know, frontals on your forehead, write it on your hand, put it everywhere, the law, because these young men were growing up bound to the terms of the covenant, under the curses of the covenant if they disobeyed. And Moses said, you need to teach your children from the time they can talk to keep the terms of the covenant because every child was a potential covenant keeper or covenant breaker. And if he grew up to be a covenant breaker, he would bring God's judgment upon the people of Israel. This was all by virtue of being born a descendant of Jacob and being circumcised on the eighth day and receiving in his person this sign. So circumcision was crucial and vital to the Jewish nation. By the time we get to the New Testament, it has taken on such a major aspect of importance that the Jews claimed that a person had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Even Gentiles who believed the gospel for the Jews, that was not enough. 
Do you remember when we looked a few weeks ago where Peter called the law the unbearable yoke? He said it was so harsh, so heavy that neither we nor our fathers could keep it. And after the elders of Jerusalem and the apostles uh, deliberated, they decided the Gentiles were not obligated to keep the law of Moses. Do you remember what provoked that controversy? It was Pharisees looking at these Gentiles who were coming to Christ and saying, that's well and good, but if they're going to be saved, they must obey the law of Moses and receive the sign of circumcision. That's necessary to be saved. That was the way the Jews viewed circumcision and its importance in the time of Christ. It had become tantamount to a saving uh, sacrament, if you will. So, what we have throughout Jewish history is this division of the circumcised, which were the Jews, and the uncircumcised, that's everybody else, the Gentiles, the pagans, the heathens. They were in the uncircumcised camp. So God gave the command to Israel to be circumcised in the flesh, but he also gave them a command to have another kind of circumcision, and it will become even more important than the circumcision of the flesh. And we want to look now at Deuteronomy chapter 10 to catch God's instruction regarding this other circumcision. I'm going to pick up in verse 12 where we read, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is to this day. So here Moses is reminding this second generation, this younger generation about to uh, enter the promised land that God had a special love for them. And it wasn't based on anything in them. He just, in his sovereign mercy, chose to love them. He was basically saying to the Israelites, God picked you to be his bride, not because you're the prettiest, not because you're the smartest, not because you're the most virtuous. He could have had any of the best-looking women in town, but for a reason only known to him, he picked you. He set his affections on you. You are special to him. Now, because of that, he said, here's the command in verse 16. So, circumcise your heart. Now, think about what God is requiring of the Israelites here. Circumcise your heart. You need to cut something from your heart. Because in the scripture, the heart is the seat of decision making. It's our will. And the Israelites had already proven their will was hostile to the things of God. Now he qualifies what he means by circumcise your heart by adding the phrase and stiffen your neck no longer. 
Don't be like your fathers, young Israelites, who when God was establishing the contract with Israel, when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the tablets of stone, before the ink was even dry, they had disobeyed commandment number one. God said, don't worship any other gods. They were worshiping another god while Moses was still on the hill. He said, don't make any graven images. They make a golden calf and bow down before it and say, my Lord and my God. They had stiff necks. They would not easily be moved one way or the other. They were going to do what they wanted. And you put a bridle on a bit and try to drag them, and they were stubborn as mules. They weren't going anywhere. They would plant their feet, lock it down, and were not movable. And God says, circumcise your hearts, change your wills, and don't be stiff-necked. Don't be obstinate. Serve the Lord. Do what he has told you to do. Obey his commandments. Keep his covenant if you want to enjoy this special relationship. Circumcise your hearts, he says. This became a recurring theme in the Old Testament. The prophet Jeremiah when he, is, when he comes to Israel to warn them of the impending judgment that God is going to bring, says this, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So even this many centuries later, the prophet of God is still coming to Israel in their obstinance and calling them to circumcise their hearts, to stop being stiff-necked, to obey the Lord, lest they come under the curses of the covenant. Jeremiah chapter 9. Maybe you're familiar with verses 23 and 24, some of our favorite verses, where God says, let the rich man not boast in his wealth or the mighty man in his strength or the wise man in his wisdom. If any man's going to boast, let him boast that he understands and knows me. And we've talked about that in other contexts where that is a, a, a term of endearment. Let him boast that he loves me, that he has a relationship with me, and that he knows that I exercise loving kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth, and that I delight in these things. But do you know what comes right after that wonderful verse, it is another statement of warning, another call to circumcise their hearts. This is, uh, this is verses 25 and 26 of Jeremiah 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clip the hair on their temples. Watch out, young folks. I don't know exactly what that means, but you don't want to do that. For all the nations are uncircumcised. Well, that's not new information. All the Gentiles, all the pagans, they're all uncircumcised. Well, of course they're uncircumcised. Circumcision was for the Jews. But notice the next phrase. And all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. They have the sign in their body, the Jews do, 
but they have not circumcised their heart like I commanded. They are still obstinate. They are still stiff-necked. They still are going their own way and breaking the covenant. And God warns them that his judgment is coming on all who disobey, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. If they are disobedient to his commands, they will suffer his consequences. So God has commanded them to, to circumcise their heart. And there's only one problem with that. That is an impossible task. He is asking the Jews to change their wills and their motives. He's, he's requiring the Jews to love him. And yet the scripture repeatedly says, we're born sinners. We don't just simply decide to love him. He has given them an impossible task, and he's done so for a purpose. We talked about this before. The old covenant and the law was given not to make Israel more righteous, but to actually make them more unrighteous, to reveal their sin, to provoke their sin, so that they would recognize they do not have the ability to circumcise their hearts. They don't have the ability in and of themselves to change direction and serve God. They need a Savior, and they need God to do a work in their heart to change them. That was the purpose of the law. That's why God said, circumcise your hearts. So they would try and fail and call out to him and his power and his forgiveness. Now, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God gives a glimpse of the day when he would himself circumcise the hearts of his people. We read in detail the curses of the covenant laid out in Deuteronomy 28. And that was a sobering discussion. In chapter 29, Moses essentially says to Israel, now you guys are going to go out of here with this covenant and you're going to blow it and God is going to bring upon your head all the curses that he promised. Can you imagine that? What kind of pep talk is that? I'm telling you guys, here are the terms of the covenant. Now you're about to enter the promised land and guess what? You're going to fail, and God's going to judge you. Kind of defeating them before they ever start, it sounds to me like. But in chapter 30, Moses brings a glimmer of hope to this people that he's already said are going to fail to keep the covenant. He talks about restoring the people of Israel, bringing them back when they repent. And in verse 6, he says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. So here, as he's given the covenant to Israel, he says there is coming a day when God himself will change your heart. When God will do what you are not able to do yourself, he will change it. He will give you the will and the desire to love him. And this too becomes a recurring theme throughout the Old Testament. We've already seen it in the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, quoted in Hebrews chapter 8, where God says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the new covenant. He says, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them upon their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. In the new covenant, 
God is going to do a work in the hearts of his people. He's going to do the circumcising of their heart. And Ezekiel has a wonderful uh, promise tied to this new covenant describing the new heart. It's in chapter 36 where God says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will wash you and I will cleanse you, he says. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Again, the promise that a day is coming when God will take the heart of stone that would not move, that would not budge, that would not give up their evil ways and he would make it a soft heart, heart of flesh. Not as we usually think of the word flesh as sinful, but in the sense of it's no longer hardened but it's, it's malleable, it, it is shapeable. He says, I will put my spirit in you and give you the desire and the will to serve me and to obey me. Those are part of the promises of the new covenant that God would make, the new heart and new spirit. Now, when we get to Jesus' day, the Jews have a problem. After all of these centuries, they have become convinced and firm. You might say it's even written in stone for them. They are God's own possession. They are a kingdom of priests. They are a holy nation. They have completely forgotten the if of the covenant. They are convinced by virtue of having circumcision of having the law, the covenant, they are special to God. They're safe. They are not under his wrath. One of the great ironies is when the Pharisees are arguing with Jesus, and Jesus talks about how he can free them. And they say, free us? We're Israel. We're not enslaved. We've never been enslaved. All while being under oppression of the Roman Empire, slaves to Caesar, under the judgment of God. They say, we're free. They were blind to what was really happening because they had already convinced themselves that by virtue of being in the covenant and having circumcision, they are special to God. They were convinced they didn't need circumcised hearts because God was pleased with them. And they were simply waiting for Messiah to come and destroy Caesar and his rule and bring Israel into dominance across the earth. That's what they were waiting for. And when Jesus came along and said, you need to repent. You Jews, you Pharisees, you need to be baptized by the Spirit. He said, what are you talking about? And that's what turned them against him. They were convinced they were special to God simply by their status, simply by being offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and having the law. The Apostle Paul has some very important things to teach us about the Jews and circumcision in his letter to the Roman church 
in chapter 2. If you've studied the book of Romans, you know that there are many paragraphs and chapters focused on the Jews and teaching Christians how to think about Israel. Because the Judaizers had spread everywhere. The Jewish influence was everywhere. Everywhere there were Christians, there were Jews trying to persuade them to keep the law, to go back to circumcision and the old covenant. And so Paul, at every turn, it seems, in almost every letter, has to address the Jewish influence. And Romans is chalked full of these uh, teachings about it. We're going to pick up in chapter 2, in verse 17, where Paul says this, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. Let me pause there for a minute. Let's just take a breath and realize what Paul is saying here. He's saying, if you are in this circle, this camp, you are a Jew. You bear that name. You are part of the circumcised group. In distinction from everybody else who would be in the uncircumcised group. He's talking about those. If you are a Jew, and as he goes through and lists all these things, he's giving us a glimpse into the psyche of the Jew, into what the Jew thought about himself in that day. Here's what the Jew thought. First of all, he relies upon the law. He depends upon it. Not that if he keeps the law, he will be special to God. Paul is saying you depend on just having it, just being a hearer or a possessor of that law. And you think that's enough for you. And they boasted in God, he said. They were convinced they had this special relationship. They were convinced that they knew his will and they approved the things that are essential, or a better translation would be excellent. By having the law, by being the special people of God, they could tell everybody what was the better choice. They could be instructors in morality and in good things. Being, being instructed out of the law, are you confident that you're, you yourself are a guide to the blind? People wandering around, wondering how to please God. The Jews said, come on, we'll show you. We have the law. And you who are living in darkness, we can be the, the light shining to lead you to glory. Come with us. We have the law. Correctors of the foolish, teachers of those who are immature, those who don't know much about God, the Jews said, we can help you because we have the law. Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. He says this, Therefore, you who are all these things, you who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Now, if he were here preaching this, and we weren't just reading it, it wouldn't have been that nice. Because what he's saying is, you who teach others, don't you teach yourself? It's an accusatory statement is what he's making here. All of these rhetorical questions he's going to ask in the Greek construction are requiring an affirmative answer. You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? Yes, is the answer he expects. You who say one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Nod your heads like this, Jews, he would say. 
You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Again, in the Greek, that can be a question or it can be a statement. I'm convinced it's a statement. He is saying, you who boast in the law, in the covenant with God, through breaking the law, you dishonor him. And then he brings this quote from the Old Testament. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. What he's doing is he's saying the, Jew, the Jewish mindset of his day. They were convinced that simply by being in the circle, they were the answer to everyone's problems because they knew God, God knew them, and they loved God, and God loved them. They were special, and yet he's calling them on their hypocrisy and their sin. You've been teaching others, you've been going around proclaiming all this truth, but you haven't learned the lesson yourself. You're like piano instructors who can't find middle C. You don't have a clue about true obedience, and yet you're out there talking to everyone about how special you are to God, and in your sin, in the fact that you break the very commandment you're trying to impose upon others, you cause all the Gentiles to disparage the name of God. Then he goes straight at them. In verse 25, he says, For indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law. Circumcision, as we've already said, binds a person to the covenant. The terms are the covenant, terms of the covenant are you will be God's possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation, special to God, a chosen race, if you keep the terms. And Paul says, circumcision is of great value. It's the sign that God will bless you in all these ways so long as you keep the terms, as long as you keep the law. So yeah, circumcision is great. Brag about it. Trumpet it in the streets. You're circumcised. Just make sure you keep the law so that you really are distinct from the Gentile nations, that you belong in this circle because of your obedience. But, he says, if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. That mark which distinguishes you, which is supposed to set you apart, which is supposed to be the defining mark that says you're different than the rest, is only distinct if you actually keep the covenant. But if you transgress the law, if you break God's commandments, you're no different than those out here. In fact, your circumcision is undone. It's no longer circumcision. You're no longer set apart. Then he hits them where it really hurts. Verse 26. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? Don't miss what he's saying here. He's speaking hypothetically. Nobody keeps the law. No Jew keeps the law. No Gentile keeps the law. He's going to spend a lot of time on that in chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jews and Gentiles are all in the same camp. They're all in the same boat. Whatever metaphor you want to use, they're all together. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. We need a Savior. 
But he says, let's just suppose a Gentile, someone out here in the uncircumcised realm who's not been marked with the mark of God in the covenant, keeps the law, obeys the covenant terms perfectly, obeys the Ten Commandments without flaw and all the other statutes. He says that person who does that will be regarded as circumcision. And in fact, he will condemn the person in the circle because he kept the terms of the covenant. What Paul is saying here to the Jews is, it's in my hypothetical situation here, a person who kept the law would actually be regarded as a Jew by God, and you, who are descendant of Abraham, who bear in your body the mark of the covenant, would be regarded as a Gentile by God. And this would have gotten the Jews fighting mad to suggest that a law-keeping Gentile would be special to God and that a descendant of Abraham, marked by the sign of circumcision, would be an enemy of God. This is why every time Paul went into a city, the first thing he checked out was the jail cell because he knew it wasn't going to be very long until the Jews were going to beat him up and cast him in jail if they could possibly do it. He knew, or maybe it was the hospital he checked out first because he knew the Jews were not going to like this message. And when they had the opportunity, they stoned him and beat him and persecuted him because he's saying an uncirc uncircumcised person who keeps the law, he's special to God. You Jews are not if you don't keep the law. And now he explains something that we need to grasp. Verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Let me read that again. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Let me read that a third time. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. The New Testament strives to make this point over and over and over again, and yet we so easily miss it. What is a Jew as God regards a Jew? It has nothing to do with externals. It has nothing to do with ethnic descent. What he's saying here is, no one is a Jew in God's eyes by something done to their flesh. That is circumcision. And in case we miss it, he goes on and says, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Why did I read the first part of that verse three times? Because I want you to think with me for a second. When you hear the word Jew today, I would be willing to bet that every person in this room thinks of an ethnic people group who live over on the other side of the world who are Jews outwardly. And Paul is emphatic. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is a part of the flesh. 
We must stop thinking in terms of the Jews as a people group because God no longer looks as the Jews as a people group. But he goes on to say, he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart, not the foreskin of the flesh, not something done to a boy who's eight days old, Real circumcision, what God regards as circumcision, is something done in the heart by the Spirit, not the letter of the law. And his praise is not from men, but from God. What Paul is saying here, beloved, is that since Christ has come, the very definition of what it means to be a Jew has been changed and transformed. Who is in this circle now when God regards someone as a Jew? Those who are in Christ. Those who believe the gospel. Who are those outside of the circle? The uncircumcised? Who does the New Testament refer to as Gentiles? Unbelievers. They are outside the camp. So if you are a believer in Christ, if you have been circumcised in the heart, you, in God's eyes, are a Jew. And whether you live in Jerusalem, or Russia, or China, if you do not believe the gospel and have not been circumcised of the heart, I don't care if your name ends in Stein, you are part of the uncircumcised. You're not a Jew. In fact, Paul goes on to say repeatedly, emphatically, circumcision of the flesh has lost its significance. It is insignificant, and I choose that word for a purpose. No longer is circumcision a sign of anything with God. Physical, fleshly circumcision is no longer anything with God. Listen to these verses. 1 Corinthians 7, 19. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Galatians chapter 5. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Chapter 6 of Galatians. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but what matters is a new creation. Colossians chapter 3. Paul says, We have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, but Christ is all and is in all. Almost every church that Paul writes to, he makes a point to say, that physical circumcision means nothing anymore. It does not put somebody in a special relationship to God. What does put someone in a special relationship to God is the circumcision of the heart. 
the cutting of the flesh of the heart. Now his most emphatic declaration of this is to the church in Philippi, where he says in his typical genteel style, beware of the dogs. Now in antiquity, dogs were not cute. They were not the kind of cuddly pets that we have today. Being called a dog is in no wise a compliment in antiquity. It is a strong term of disdain and contempt. Beware of the dogs. Well, who are the dogs? Beware of the evil workers. What evil workers, Paul? Beware of the false circumcision. That's not actually the word that he uses. The real Greek word would be translated, beware of the concision, the mutilators. He's referring to the Jews. And he says, beware of them. Beware of those that are out to cut the flesh and bind you to the old covenant. For we are the true circumcision. Again, the word true is not in the original. Literally, he says, we are the circumcision. Who, Paul? We who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Do you realize what Paul is saying here? Beware of the dogs. Beware of the Jews who are trying to bring you into the old covenant fold. He calls them evil workers and, and dogs and the mutilators. But we who glory in Christ, we who have been circumcised by the Spirit, we are the circumcision of God. Beloved, if you are a Christian, that's you he's talking about. You are the circumcision of God. I want to finish by looking at one verse in 1 Peter chapter 2. In verse 9, Peter says to a group of Christians, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why do you suppose Peter chose those words to describe Christians? Have you heard them before? You are a people for God's own possession, writing to the church. You are a kingdom of priests or a royal priesthood. Same thing. You are a holy nation. Why does Peter go and grab those terms to describe the church? Because we are the circumcision. We are Israel. We are the fulfillment of what God has intended all along. Remember the old covenant, as we saw last time, was a parable to illustrate 
the new covenant. The old covenant was a law given to a people to provoke their sin, to reveal their sin, so that they and everybody else would see that we desperately need a Savior. We need to be circumcised of the heart because we can't do it ourselves. And it accomplished its purpose. And now in the new covenant, we are the Israel. Notice the important distinction. The old covenant said, you will be God's own possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation, if you keep the commandments. In the new covenant, you are God's own possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. Catch that distinction. To the Jews, it was, you will be special to me if you obey. To the church, it is, you are special to me because Christ obeyed. That's the glory of the new covenant. There's nothing we must do, there's nothing we can do to earn God's favor, to be blessed by Him, to be special to Him. Christ has accomplished it all. And therefore, we are special to him. And the old covenant, it was, here's the external sign of circumcision. Now you go circumcise your hearts. In the new covenant, it is, I have circumcised your heart by my Holy Spirit. That makes all the difference in the world. In the new covenant, God has fulfilled all those promises that someday I will circumcise your heart. Someday I will write my law in your heart and in your mind. Someday I will give you hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. And I will put my spirit in you to give you a heart that desires to please God. That is fulfilled in the new covenant in the believers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit, which we will look at next time.